You are listening to National Security Law Today. The United States faces massive challenges and threats to its national security, its wealth, and its internal cohesion, all the result of constant incursions into computer networks. These are often followed by exfiltrations of our trade secrets, our proprietary codes, and our personal data. And when it comes to the false messages we willingly consume, well, our addiction to the small dopamine hits we get scrolling through social media can be hard to replace without civic engagement, local newspapers, and our societal institutions. American intellectual property, trade secrets, and data holdings are being placed voluntarily into the hands of foreign actors. And the time to do something about it is right now before a cyber Pearl Harbor brings the country to its knees. A new book explains all of this, and it reads like a perfect speaking indictment charging China and Russia with engaging in decades-long, well-considered warfare against the United States. And as it's happening, America tries to ignore the facts and carry on as usual. But what makes this book different is its clear and detailed plan for how the United States can actually turn things around if it chooses to act now. Here's the catch. It would require that Americans and our elected leaders stop infighting, get a little curious, and realize a path forward that will require a seismic shift in government corporate culture and a completely different approach to a national educational system. Welcome to National Security Law Today, the podcast of the ABA's Standing Committee on Law and National Security. I'm Elisa Poteet, and my guest tonight is Michael G. McLaughlin. He's the co-author of Battlefield Cyber, How China and Russia Are Undermining Our Democracy and National Security. Mike is a veteran naval intelligence officer, having served as senior counterintelligence advisor for United States Cyber Command, coordinating counterintelligence operations in cyberspace. And he currently works as a cybersecurity attorney and policy advisor here in D.C. for the law firm of Buchanan, Ingersoll, and Rooney. He's also a research affiliate at the University of Maryland's Applied Research Lab for Intelligence and Security. Mike, thanks for coming in. Thanks so much for having me. I want you to start by defining the problem because you are a fact guy. It is very clear from this book. But I also want you to set out these solutions. And I hope that some of our listeners are in a position to implement some of these solutions because they're actually clear, serious, and I think have a high degree likelihood of success if they're implemented. If we could, let's start with the economic system. Why don't you talk a little bit about how our basic capitalist system has, unfortunately, while it's given us a lot of wealth, has also served to undermine our current cybersecurity. The dynamics of capitalism really create both the technologies that can secure the digital spaces and the competitive pressures that sometimes leave those spaces vulnerable, which I think it creates a challenge when we're dealing with countries like China and Russia, which really operate in an autocratic and authoritarian regime. They are able to move and pivot their command economies in ways that we simply cannot. And in doing so, they create an environment that's conducive for both cyber warfare and, and for better cybersecurity than we are. There are a lot of reasons for this. In general, it comes down to just a handful. The first is a profit-driven focus. And because of our capitalistic society, we find that the primary obligation of most American companies is not to national security, but to their shareholders. It's not even necessarily to the stakeholders, because a lot of the stakeholders in a company 
they benefit from good cybersecurity. And so our companies are geared towards quarterly profits and they're geared towards increasing their bottom line and improving their revenue stream. And as a result, the expenditures don't necessarily go towards cybersecurity or long-term solutions. And instead, they're looking at a short-term horizon. And the second one, which leads into, is those short-term goals. So quarterly reports are one of the Achilles heels of the American system and the capitalistic system. And again, the reason being is because we have this very short time horizon. The Chinese government looks at things on these five-year or 50-year timeframes. And that's just not the way we're built. We look at our political structure, our political system as four-year increments. Well, we look at our capitalistic structure, our businesses on four-month increments. That becomes a real a significant problem when we start looking at cybersecurity because cybersecurity inherently is a much longer tail problem and something that we need to invest in for the future, not just for quarterly earnings. I think it also sounds a little speculative. It's based on a lot of what ifs. And I think sometimes that doesn't translate so easily to boards and CEOs. Let's also go to the sort of China is the problem and China's the market. It is a big market. They got a billion people, more than a billion there. And every major business wants to penetrate the Chinese market or use China for manufacturing and drive production costs down, return on investment up, profits up. You set out to do business in China. What are you giving up and why is it really in the end terribly hazardous? Yeah, I, I think the most critical difference between the United States and China that, that businesses, that individuals really need to understand, it comes down to something even more basic than ideologies or, or religion or what type of economic system you have. The very basic difference between the United States and China is that in the United States, we have rule of law that's designed to protect individuals, whether we're talking about people or corporations that are, that are incorporated in the United States or doing business in the United States. Our law, our system of law is designed to protect those individuals from government overreach. These are our individual rights. These are the things that we enshrine in the Bill of Rights, the things we enshrine through the Constitution. They're things that we honor and love and cherish as Americans. In China, that script is absolutely flipped completely. In no place is this seen more clearly than in China's data privacy, cybersecurity, and their national security laws. So back in 2015, the Chinese government began rolling out this series of laws that compel companies operating in China to provide Chinese intelligence and security services with unfettered access to their networks and their data. And so where the Fourth Amendment of the Constitution was crafted to protect individual rights, the Chinese law are crafted to protect and advance the agenda of the Chinese Communist Party at the expense of individual rights. And so if you're a company and you're operating in China, you need to understand that your existence in that country is at the behest of the Chinese government and everything you do there can be turned over to them at will. You don't have the option of saying no. There is no subpoena and warrant process. If Chinese intelligence and security services show up at your door and say, we want access to your network or we want your intellectual property, you can throw up all the arguments you want. But if you want to operate in China, the cost of doing business is compliance. That's the difference. And they also require you to give up your actual code, right? Absolutely. And I, I think that's something that a lot of people don't understand. They're going to get your source code. They're going to get your base code. And that is a cost of doing business. History has shown what, what do they tend to do with that, Mike? Well, and th this goes back to 2003. We saw this, the most notorious case of this was when Microsoft opened up and began doing business in China. China required Microsoft to turn over the source code for its Windows operating system for inspection. So going all the way back to 2003, 
Microsoft Windows, that operating system, has been subject to Chinese inspection, reverse engineering, and potential exploitation as a result of that source code now being in their hands. And so the problem with that comes in in, in that every time we do an upgrade to any sort of system, any, any, any software in general, those upgrades are incremental. You're never upgrading an entire system all at once. You're taking code that exists. You're copying the code that works. You're making small modifications to that code and increasing upon it. And so in an operating system where you can have millions or tens of millions of lines of code, really the upgrades are only going to be maybe a few hundred thousand or, or in the low millions of lines of code that are actually different. Well, if all of those lines of code that are replicated from version to version have a compromise in them or have something that the Chinese have identified as being vulnerable to a zero-day exploit, for instance, then it's going to be carried over from one version to the next. And so we have no idea right now, and, and Windows operating system is used across the world and throughout the U.S. government, but we don't know the extent to which the Chinese have penetrated the Windows operating system as a result of their exploitation of the code that was handed over to them back in 2003. And the likelihood that they've penetrated is 100%. Well, we've seen in the Microsoft Exchange server compromise of, I think, 2021 is when that occurred. That's a prime example of the Chinese taking advantage of vulnerabilities in Microsoft's code and Microsoft's operating system in order to conduct espionage, in order to penetrate networks and create backdoors that otherwise would not have existed. Yes, Microsoft is one of the largest purveyors of software, if not the largest purveyor of software in the world. They also have more CVEs. They also have more vulnerabilities in their software than anyone else. A lot of that is a result of them producing so much software. But if China has this menu to pick from for operating systems to target and they have the source code, it very much increases the likelihood that China is able to penetrate Microsoft-based systems in a better, more efficient way than they would otherwise, or than if they didn't have that source code in the first place. But it's the cost of doing business. You got to turn it over. That was a business decision that Microsoft made in the early 2000s in order to penetrate the Chinese market. It probably looks less good in the rearview mirror than it did in the moment, right? Well, hindsight's always 2020, right? That's right. All right. Well, let's let's talk a little bit. We hear the the term supply chain kicked around, but what happens when necessary items in the supply chain? And let me make this clear to listeners what I'm talking about here. I'm talking about semiconductors, the actual processing part of any computer. What happens when things like that, that kind of an elemental and necessary item in the supply chain is made in China? Semiconductors are such a critical part of our economy, and they're such a critical part of our national security, and really they underpin everything we do because every computer system, every phone, your car, your iPod, everything that you use has semiconductors in it. Everything you do has chips in it, and that's really what drives our world. And so to say, what happens if we cut off that supply chain? What happens if that supply chain no longer exists? Well, our technological innovation, anything we have that's based on technology is going to cease. And we're going to be stuck with what we have with no future upgrades. We saw this keenly during the COVID-19 pandemic when the semiconductor chip shortage reared its ugly head and suddenly the price of vehicles skyrocketed. And why? Because vehicles today cannot operate without semiconductors, without microchips. So when there was a microchip shortage, suddenly it's not that we don't have the parts to manufacture vehicles, we don't have tires, it's that the car can't operate because its digital brain doesn't exist. It's not there. 
And so if we put ourselves in a position where the supply chain is cut off for semiconductors, something that so underpins our economy, so underpins our national security, then we are not able to operate in an efficient, functional manner as we would otherwise. And so what happens when that supply chain goes to China? Well, right now, the semiconductor supply chain really runs through Taiwan. Taiwan and South Korea are the two main areas where semiconductors are manufactured. Um, China has been doing everything they can to try to bring that technology, bring the capability of fabricating these semiconductors and these chips on shore. But so far, they have they've been unsuccessful. And in large part, that has been a result of the CHIPS Act and some of the sanctions that we have placed on China, such that the lithography machines that manufactured and designed to print the chips, they require very, very advanced technologies, different types of different types of optics, different types of lenses that the Chinese just have not been able to manufacture or to replicate. By cutting off the supply chain and by ensuring that they don't ever develop that capability, we are safeguarding our own supply chains because we would become dependent on China in the same ways we're dependent on China right now for so many other technologies. And we're very much feeling that pain. And, and Apple can certainly attest to this week what the pain looks like when you entirely rely on China for your supply chain. And we're going to talk about Apple in a minute. Let's go back. When the CHIPS Act was passed, much of the banter was about what China would do to retaliate. And I'm wondering if we have finally seen that retaliation or the start of it. What are your thoughts? And let's be clear about what they did this week to Apple. I think you may see this differently or see it more in a more complex way than I'm, I'm suggesting. But why don't you explain what happened to Apple this week and what the Chinese did? Certainly. First and foremost, yes, the Chinese absolutely are retaliating as a result of the CHIPS Act. And they're doing this in, in two ways. And so the one you mentioned with being, being Apple, the government reportedly banned the use of iPhones for all government-backed agencies and companies. And this caused Apple, I think it wiped out about $200 billion in market value for Apple in, in two days. That's a significant amount when you're talking about a trillion-dollar company that's that's roughly in the ballpark of 20% of the company being being wiped out in two days. Well, coincidentally, as this occurred, and I think this is where, where maybe our, a little bit of our disagreement, Elisa, is going to come in. But this also coincided with Huawei's launch of a brand new flagship smartphone. And so while the Chinese are retaliating for certain things that we're doing under the CHIPS Act, they're also, and you'll see this as a theme with China, that they bolster their own national champions. And so they utilize everything at their disposal, whether it's economic incentives or espionage or cyber warfare. They do it not just to destabilize. They do it not just to disrupt in the way that the Russians do. But the Chinese use it to also bolster their own national champions for their own commercial ends, because ultimately they want to export Chinese companies. They want to export Chinese capabilities. That's the way that they expand and create a Chinese hegemon really worldwide. The retaliation as it relates to the chips acts with, with Apple, the ban created a significant issue and really raised questions about the business environment in China for Western companies. I think a lot of companies now are looking at Apple and saying, well, if China can do this to Apple, which was the darling of, of the Chinese government for many, many years, and they, they partnered, opened up all of these different manufacturing facilities, partnered with Foxconn to develop the iPhone and, and to manufacture it in China, almost exclusively in China until recently. 
if China can do that to Apple, it can certainly do that to any other company, any other company that's operating in China. And that's kind of that that veiled threat is that to the rest of the world is that we we can shut you down. We can create significant barriers for your advancement worldwide if you cross us or if you don't, if you don't act in a way that we view as being conducive to Chinese goals. And so that's the Apple side of it. But that's not the only side of the retaliation, which I think is critical here. And so the CHIPS Act is geared towards advancing U.S.-based development and manufacture of microchips and microprocessors. And the goal was we're trying to reshore or nearshore this capability. As I discussed, it's the, the primary manufacturers of semiconductors and microchips are in Taiwan and in South Korea right now. The U.S., very early on, had great capability advancements with chips and, and really pioneered this, this capability. But slow we allowed this to go by the wayside. Intel, Texas Instruments, they were really leading the way. And then TSCM came along and Samsung came along and we've, we've kind of given away a lot of this capability. Well, now we're trying to bring it back home. The Chinese are not real thrilled about this, primarily because they like having control of the semiconductor supply chain being in their backyard. Because within it, when it's in Taiwan or when it's in South Korea, they can very easily threaten the global supply chain by blockading South Korea, by blockading Taiwan. And suddenly, if there is a war between the United States and China, we no longer have access to that very critical supply chain. And so us bringing that back on shore creates a significant issue. Well, the other problem that the Chinese have with what we're doing is now we're imposing sanctions or embargoes or tariffs, or we're preventing these lithography machines or other types of other capabilities or other materials that are necessary for the manufacturing of semiconductors and the fabrication of these chips. We are preventing them from going to China, not just from the United States but from Germany, from Europe, from other parts of the world where they manufacture these very specific and, and, and sophisticated lenses, for instance. Well, if China doesn't have access to those, then they can't advance their own semiconductor capability. The problem that we're running into, and as we do this and try to put this chokehold on, on China's advancement, is that China is the world's leader in rare earth elements. Specifically, gallium and germanium are two elements that are absolutely critical to the manufacture of semiconductors. Without these two elements, we have a very hard time creating these ourselves. And so now we're getting in this tit for tat that the Chinese government, which effective on September 1st of this year, and, and really in direct response to our restrictions on advanced chip printers, they put restrictions on the export of these two rare earth elements. And now we're going to see prices increase for, for chips and for microprocessors across the board, which in turn is going to be passed on to consumers. But China's restriction on, on exporting key metals like, like gallium and germanium in response to these export controls it can disrupt all sorts of downstream industries, such as uh, you know, electric vehicles, computers in general, and but really anything anything that operates as a computer, which again, as we discussed, is just about everything we use. Okay, that's all bad news. And I assume these particular minerals, is China the only place where we can source them? Or is just China a place where they have a lot of them? So China is a place where they have a lot of them. Unfortunately, when it comes to rare earth elements, they're not in places that we typically have good relations. And so what I mean by that is Siberia has a lot of really great rare earth elements, but I don't think that we are on good terms with Moscow these days. 
The other places where you find a lot of rare earth elements are Africa, which is part of the reason why you see China, and for lack of a better term, colonizing Africa, at least doing it in a different way. But China is pushing its Belt and Road Initiative throughout the continent of Africa to try to push its advanced technologies for on the one hand and create these rentier states in Africa for the purposes of extracting a lot of those rare earth elements that China needs and wants to create a, a global monopoly or have global control over. And so where it doesn't have it with, have those rare earth elements within its own borders, it's actively seeking to obtain them elsewhere. Okay. And I don't hear a lot of discourse on the Hill about this right now, which leaves me terribly concerned because we're focusing on ridiculous things and not the big things. And that always leaves me worried in our sort of national security sphere. Let's talk a little bit about sort of the structural issues with capitalism as well, which is a lot of CEOs, you mentioned in your book, sort of style themselves as internationals. And I'm not sure that they perceive what can be happening to them and to their legacies, quite frankly, in this obvious cold conflict with both the PRC and the Russian Federation. Can you talk a little bit about what you've seen and how you believe that plays into some of our current vulnerabilities in cyberspace? I think it's an unfair generalization to characterize all CEOs as purely profit driven, you know, to draw the little devil horns on everybody with a suit and tie that goes into the C-suite. I, I think that's that's overly simplistic. And in a lot of cases, I'm as much of a perpetrator as this as anyone, where it's always I try to put the blame at the highest level and say, well, it's certainly the C-suite. They're the problem. I know and work with incredibly prominent executives who are fiercely patriotic and willing to take the hit on their balance sheets in the name of national security. They're willing to make that effort. They're willing to put their company out there and they're willing to actually not take deals with Chinese companies because they know that it's not the right thing to do, or they know that there is going to be an issue down the line from a national security perspective, having nothing to do with profit motives. That being said, globalization writ large has created opportunities to expand profit margins by outsourcing the manufacturing and development of a lot of critical technologies to countries whose interests don't necessarily align with our own, and primarily China. That's where we're seeing this most keenly. And unfortunately, weaning companies away from those profit margins to reshore or to, to nearshore our manufacturing, it's not always an easy task. I think there are opportunities to incentivize bringing back certain key industries, and semiconductors, I think, are a prime example. But executives need to take a longer view than just quarterly earnings. They need to understand that many American companies will cease to exist in the next decade if we continue bargaining with the devil through our current trade practices with China. And if we continue to look for the quarterly revenue generation, the quarterly earnings and the profit margins that come with Chinese manufacturing without recognizing that if we give Chinese a chokehold on our supply chain, it will have negative ramifications should we go to war. That's something that we can't teach necessarily. That's something that we really have to instill at a very basic level and really remind CEOs and executives that they have a national security imperative that is equal to, if not greater than, their fiduciary responsibilities. And I mean, you make a compelling case that their fiduciary responsibilities should include consideration of national security, because if they're going to cease to exist because of choices they make now that are acutely short term, then that is a business decision that needs to be considered, not just a question of patriotism. Let's pivot to the issue of ransomware, which is one of the topics you discuss in your book. It's hard evidence, I would think, these multiple ransomware instances of sort of a battlefield cyber. Why don't you talk about that and what you see are some of the enabling features right now that we're looking at in cyberspace? 
Certainly. Ransomware is something I worked on extensively when I was in service, when I was at U.S. Cyber Command. It's something I work on every day in my practice. And so I lead our incident response team, and we have clients daily who are getting hit with ransomware and contending with this problem. It's an ever-growing problem. And so ransomware in general, and for, for those who are unfamiliar, I think everybody's heard about what, you know, heard about ransomware, heard about the, the ramifications of it. But at, at its most basic level, ransomware is just a type of malicious software. It's a type of malware that's used to encrypt data on a computer or a server with the intent to extract payment from a victim in exchange for either the decryption key or a promise not to leak the data. We see this in, in a lot of different ways, but typically now it's no longer just the encryption. Typically we see encryption and exfiltration, meaning a company's network or an organization's network is compromised and the data is exfiltrated out of the network by some, some method. And then the network or the servers are encrypted such that the company or the organization is not able to operate. And at the same time, there is the ever-present threat of the data that was compromised or that was exfiltrated being leaked to the public. And in some cases, this data is highly sensitive. I mean, if it's from a defense contractor, for instance, it could be blueprints to the F-35. If it's a healthcare provider, it could be PHI, protected health information. It could just be driver's license information, or it could be something else that's sensitive. But in either case, there are, there are myriad reasons why companies would not want that data to be published, data of their customers or their employees to be published. And at the same time, if their network is encrypted, then they're unable to operate. They're unable to generate revenue and to see those quarterly returns. And so the incentive for companies to negotiate and to pay ransomware actors in order to get back to business or to get their data back, that incentive is, is very high. And unfortunately, it, it creates a almost a perverse incentive for the ransomware actors where they continue to operate and continue to flourish, despite the fact that we have such a high focus on it with through the FBI or through, through U.S. Cyber Command. So according to IBM, the average cost of ransomware breach in 2022 was $4.54 million. That cost does not include the ransom payment itself. And so to think about that for a second, that is, those are your attorney's fees. Those are the forensic analysts who are coming in and, and doing the investigations of the network to clear and contain the network. That's your e-discovery to identify what all is on the network that needs to be notified, whether it's personal information or protected health information or otherwise. That's crisis communication. That's the cost of the negotiator who's going to come in and talk to the ransomware group. And then it's also the recovery. If you have to rebuild your network, it's what does it cost to get back? That average price, the price tag on that is four and a half million dollars. If you have to pay the ransom on top of that, you're looking at something that could be in the tens of millions, depending on the organization. And so the price and the cost associated with ransomware is absolutely significant and it, it's, it's growing every year. Many people view this as just being a commercial problem alone. And so if you're a company and you get hit with a ransomware, it's your own fault. Your employee shouldn't have clicked the link or you should have backups or you should have, have better network security. I don't disagree with a lot of those, but at the same time, it's not just a commercial problem. Ransomware is absolutely a national security problem. So back in 2021, 74% of all ransomware revenue ultimately went to accounts affiliated with Russia. That number has not changed. When many of the most notorious ransomware groups act, the outcomes of their actions seem to align suspiciously well with the Kremlin's objectives. As Russian cyber actors and Russian ransomware actors are targeting companies and organizations throughout the US, it seems that a lot of the companies and a lot of the organizations that they are targeting align very well with what the Kremlin is looking for. And what I mean by that is when we were discussing, we being the United States and NATO, were discussing providing Abrams tanks to Ukraine. 
companies that were in the Abrams tank supply chain were being targeted with ransomware. That's not coincidence. That's not something that one day a criminal actor is going to say, well, I'm going to target a tread manufacturer that supplies Abrams tanks. That's something that is a coordinated effort between a government or a nation state and a criminal actor who's acting as a proxy for that nation state. And so what we view as criminal activity large and what we treat as criminal activity through the lens of law enforcement or intelligence or the military, that criminal activity can at times, in fact, be proxies for a nation state and proxies that we don't really have. We're not equipped to go after or to target and to eradicate utilizing our military capabilities. And instead, we're relying on law enforcement authorities, which at times can be ineffective against these types of threats. Part two of this conversation with Michael McLaughlin will be released next Tuesday, September 26th. And before you go, mark your calendars for the 33rd Annual Review of the Field of National Security Law, CLE Conference, this November 16th through 17th, held at the Renaissance Washington, D.C. Downtown Hotel. Don't miss out on engaging presentations, thought-provoking panels, and unparalleled networking opportunities. Registration link and event details can be found in the episode description. We look forward to seeing you there. The views expressed on national security law today have not been approved by the House of Delegates or the Board of Governors of the American Bar Association, and this recording should not be construed as representing ABA policy.